0: Lord God, uh, thank you so much that we are, I guess, gaining little freedoms and able to catch up with people a little bit more. And, uh, I ask that, that you would give us more and more of that, more opportunity to spend time with each other, with the people that we care about, Lord, and to, um, yeah, that you would help us bring all of this back under control. But in the meantime, I praise you and thank you for your word and thank you that we have the opportunity to read it and to learn from it. And I ask that this morning you would speak to us, that you would teach us, Lord, that you would help us to understand your love for us, Lord, and what it is that you wanna do in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so another quick recap. Quickish. First five chapters of the book of Romans pulled out with the issue of
1: justification.
0: Justification. What is justification? Being declared righteous. Yep, being declared righteous. So the idea is you're going to stand before a judge, God, you're going to have your life judged, and the question is, well, what's the verdict going to be? And if we're judged based on God's law, whether that's the law that He's revealed to us personally in the form of our conscience, or whether that's the law that He's revealed to us in His word, then none of us, well, none of us have kept His law, right? Um, Every single one of us have broken it many, many times. And so, no one will stand justified, declared righteous before Him. No one will be declared righteous because, as Paul says in Romans 3, There is no one who is righteous, not even one. And so that's the issue that Paul's been dealing with. How can God declare us righteous, even though we're not righteous? Well, none of us are righteous according to God's law. And that's really the key. If we're judged according to God's law, then it's true that none of us are going to be found or be able to be declared righteous or justified, but we don't have to be judged according to God's law. And that that's the point of the first five chapters of the book of Romans is that there is a different way to be judged. There's a different way to be declared righteous. And that is, we can be justified, declared righteous based on our faith instead of our actions, instead of the things that we do. We can be justified by God's grace instead of God's law. How? Well, Paul said that if we trust in Jesus, if we believe him, place our faith in him, then God will credit Jesus' righteousness to us. And Paul gives this really cool analogy um, to help us picture what's going on in chapter 5. He says that Jesus is kind of like Adam. Adam, when he broke God's law, when he sinned, was acting on our behalf. It was kind of like he was—he did so as the representative of all of humanity, that he was there in that garden. And um, when he was there in that garden, in a sense, he was representing all of those who would follow after him, all of humanity. And when he sinned, he did so representing us. And so that is why his actions have been attributed to all of humanity. His actions, his sin has been attributed to all of those who he represented in that moment. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. So then, in the same way, Jesus came to act on our behalf. Um, he came to represent all of those who would follow after or who would believe in Him. But rather than sin, Jesus came and perfectly kept God's law. But He did that as our representative. He did so representing us. And so then, uh, His righteousness, the righteousness that He, I guess, earned by perfectly keeping God's law, has been attributed to all those who he represented. Um, His righteousness is credited to all those who believe in him, if that makes sense. That's kind of the picture. We've got two people who are acting on behalf of everybody that they represent. And in the case of Adam, he he sinned and therefore his sin was attributed to all the people that he represented in the same way Jesus kept God's law. He was righteous and therefore his righteousness is attributed or applied to everybody who he represented is the idea. So when we're finally judged, rather than declare us righteous based on our our, uh, own lack of righteousness, rather than declare us unrighteous based on our lack of righteousness, God will declare us righteous. He will justify us based on God's right, on Jesus' righteousness is the idea, Um, which is great, right? But then the question is, what about the sin? It's fine that he declares us righteous because Jesus is righteous, but what does he do with all that sin that has gone unaccounted for, I guess? And I think that it's helpful to think about, like, in our courts, if say somebody broke into your house, stole all your stuff, and perhaps like hurt your parents. And then they end up in court before a judge and the judge is like, eh, it's okay, don't worry about it. Nobody's gonna be happy with that. That's not gonna be a just or a righteous judge. And so the question is, if God is, is, if God is righteous, how can he just allow all of the harm that's been done to go unpunished, unaccounted for? And he can't, he couldn't. And that is why Jesus didn't just live for us, Jesus also died for us. He not only fulfilled God's law perfectly on our behalf, he also chose to be punished as though he had not perfectly kept God's law. Um, In fact, he took all, all the punishment due for all the sins that have ever been committed. And because he did that, God can be just, right? Because he has punished the sins that have been committed while justifying, declaring righteous this, well, those who are sinners, us. So that's justification. That is the answer to how God will justify us, how God will declare us righteous, even though according to his law, we aren't righteous. And at the moment you commit yourself to Jesus, it's done. It's in the past. That's why we say justification, it's past tense salvation, it's done. Jesus' righteousness has been credited to you, you have been justified, you have been declared righteous, we have been saved from the punishment of sin. We won't be condemned. And Paul finished explaining all of that in chapter 5. Now in chapter 6, Paul is moving on, great, you're justified, but that's just the beginning. That's the very least that God wants for you. and. Having been declared righteous, God now wants to make you more righteous. Having saved us from the punishment of sin, now God wants to save us from the power of sin. He wants to make us holy. He wants to sanctify us. And and that is Paul's focus going forward. It's this term sanctification, which means justification is being declared righteous. What is sanctification?
1: Being
0: made righteous. Yeah. It's the process by which we're actually made more righteous. Okay, so Paul started chapter 6 with this question. What shall we say then? Are we to remain in sin so that grace may increase? In other words, if we've been justified, if we're not going to be condemned for our sins, right? We've already been declared righteous. Does that mean we can just keep sinning like it doesn't matter? And Paul's answer is absolutely not. He explains that when you choose to follow, when you chose to follow Jesus, your old self, your old person was crucified with him. Our old man was crucified with Jesus. So we've been set free. We're no longer slaves to our body or slaves to sin. And so Paul says that we should consider ourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And that word, consider is we said in the present tense, it it talks about something that is continuous, that is happening continuously. So this isn't something you do once. This is something moment by moment, day by day. You have to consider yourself dead to sin, but living for Jesus is the idea. Unfortunately, most of us don't, right? If you remember the story story of Reynold III, who was um, imprisoned for 10 years in a cell that had open doors and windows. If we keep obeying our flesh, if we keep indulging in sin, then we will remain, in effect, slaves to it, even though we've been set free from it. And so that is why Paul tells us do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. You know, we have like all sorts of habits that belong to our old self, to our old man, the man that was crucified. And if we want to live in the freedom that Jesus has purchased for us, then we can't keep obeying those old habits. We have to actually start making new habits, which is the idea. And so Paul says, do not let any part of your body be used as a weapon for unrighteousness. Instead, give yourselves completely to God, to those as those alive from the dead, and let every part of your body be used by God as a weapon for righteousness. And so that starts with the small things. We said, like, it's the little decisions that we make all the time. They're the most important ones. The war isn't won or lost in the really um, big battles. It's won or lost in the small ones that we encounter all the time. And it's those small victories that compound, that multiply, and um, build the habits in our lives that allow us later to win the really big battles that nobody, including ourselves, would ever have thought possible. And so, then Paul finished chapter, uh, that part of chapter 6 by saying, sin, if you do all of this, if you don't let your yourselves be used as weapons for unrighteousness, but instead give ourselves to God to be used as weapons for righteousness, then sin will have no mastery over you because you are not under the law, but under grace. And... I said, that's like, it's a very strange thing to say because everything, everything in us would tell us that if you want somebody to overcome sin, then tell them that they're going to be punished if they don't, right? Surely that will scare them into living righteously. But Paul says that, no, in fact, it's exactly the opposite, that it is only in knowing that you have been justified, that you are under God's grace, and that you will not be judged for your sins, that you will actually have the power to overcome sin, which is amazing. And that was verse 14. Today we pick up in verse 15 of chapter six. Does somebody want to read? Anybody? I'll read. Cool. Verse 15. Just verse 15. Just for now, just verse 15.
1: What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not.
0: Okay. That kind of sounds like repetition, right? Hasn't Paul already answered that question? In verse 1, he said, shall we remain in sin so that grace may increase? In verse 1, we said that the verb is remain in or continue in. And that verb is in the Greek present tense. It speaks of continuous, continuous action, so continuous sin. And Paul is speaking to the suggestion that that by living in sin, we might be able to experience even more of God's grace. And Paul's answer is, no, that's wrong. It's not how it works. Grace is, so what is grace?
2: Grace is getting what you don't deserve. So it almost isn't like you're receiving good things that you don't deserve.
0: Exactly. Grace is getting something that you don't deserve. And so justification being declared righteous, even though we're not righteous, That is grace, right? That's getting something that you don't deserve. We don't deserve to be justified, but God justifies us anyway. So that is grace. But in terms of all that God wants to give us, justification is only the beginning. It's only the start. And if we want to receive, if we want to receive all that God wants to give us that we don't deserve. So if we want to experience all of God's grace, that relies on sanctification, right? It, it relies on the process of sanctification. Justification is just the start. And once you've been justified, you've been justified. You've experienced that, say, degree of God's grace. The rest of God's grace you receive through sanctification. And so, if you want to receive all of God's grace, you can't stop here. You have to you have to be in that process of sanctification to receive all of God's grace, is what he's saying. And so, as long as you remain in sin, you are not being sanctified, right? So, as long as you remain in sin, you cannot experience all of God's grace. That's the point that he's made there. But okay, so that's the first half of chapter 15, uh, chapter 6, up to verse 14, is around that, around living continuously in sin and whether that allows you to experience more of God's grace. And Paul says, no, it doesn't. If you want to experience God's grace, you need to allow yourself to be sanctified. But now Paul addresses a slightly different question. In verse 15, the verb is not remain in, there is no remain in, the verb is sin. And the tense of that verb is something called the aorist tense and it it always describes a single action. So this isn't like a continuous action. It's not like a whole bunch of actions that are all linked together. It's just a single action. Shall we sin? Because we're not under God's, not under the law, but under God's grace. And so basically what he's saying is like, okay, fine. I shouldn't live in continuous habitual sin, but given that we're under God's grace and we're not going to be judged for our sins, then is it okay if I just sin like now and then? That's the idea. And Paul's answer is? No, no. No, absolutely not. New question, same answer. Let it never be, that is unthinkable, or as King James puts it, God forbid. I So like everybody understands the answer to that question? No, okay. But again, Paul is not dealing with justification, right? He's not saying absolutely not because if you do sin, then you might lose your salvation. That's not what he's saying. He has spent five chapters making it absolutely clear that your justification does not depend on your works, on your actions, on the things that you do. It doesn't depend on whether you've sinned or not sinned. Your justification depends only on your faith in Jesus. And so your sin is irrelevant to that aspect of your salvation. Yes. Does that make sense? Absolutely not. Has nothing to do with your justification. What Paul is saying is, if you want to be sanctified, then absolutely not. Then you shouldn't accept even occasional sin. And again, like that's not saying you're not going to sin. You're going to sin. That's fine. This is like, in, in the sense of being, being comfortable with it. Like, it's fine. It, like, I'm, I'm happy with that kind of thing, accepting it. Which reminds me of, yeah, so in the context of sanctification, Paul says, absolutely not. And this reminds me of another passage from C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, where he says, that explains what always used to puzzle me about Christian writers. They seem to be so very strict at one moment and so very free and easy at another. They talk about mere sins of thought as as if they were immensely important and then they talk about the most frightful murders and treacheries as if you had only to repent and all would be forgiven. But I've come to see that they are right. What they are always thinking of is the mark which the action leaves on that tiny central self which no one sees in this life but which each of us will have to endure or enjoy forever. We are free and easy because our justification is free and relatively easy, right? There's no sin that will prevent God from justifying us. There's no sin that is so bad that if we repent of it, God can't wash it away without a trace. And so free and easy, but at the same time, God is concerned with more than just our justification. He wants to mold our central self, our inner being into his image, into the image of Jesus and for eternity, right? Because I have this sense, I don't know if this is right, but I, I get the impression that what happens, the, the progress that we make, say, on earth has like, is eternal kind of thing. That what he's doing, to, doing with us here is for eternity kind of thing. Anyway, um, yeah, so he wants to mold us into Jesus image for eternity and he he wants to sanctify us. And in terms of our sanctification, even our thoughts can hold us back, is the idea. Lewis goes on to say, one man may be so placed that his anger sheds the blood of thousands and another so placed that however angry he gets, he will only be laughed at. But the little mark on the soul may be much the same in both. Each has done something to himself, which unless he repents will make it harder for him to keep out of the rage next time he is tempted and will make the rage worse when he does fall into it. Each of them, if he seriously turns to God, can have that twist in the central self straightened out again. The bigness or smallness of the things seen from the outside is not what really matters. Anyway, so in the context of uh, sanctification, no, we absolutely should not accept or be content with sinning even if it's an apparently small sin and even if it's only now and then why well paul goes on to say in verse 16 who wants to read
2: i'll
1: read
0: again
1: cool do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey you are that one's slaves whom you obey whether of sin to death or of obedience to righteousness.
0: Okay, so why shouldn't we surrender to sin, even occasionally? What does he say? Because we become its slave. Yeah, you're slaves of whoever you obey, right? We've been set, set free from sin, but if we keep giving into it, we will make ourselves slaves to it again, is essentially what he's saying. We talked about that a bit last week, right? That every time you surrender to sin, you're giving up territory that will make it harder for you to fight or win the next battle. And that's what Lewis was talking about above He's saying like every time you give in to anger, it's going to make it harder for you to, uh, or make it easier for you to fall into anger again the next time. And that time the anger is probably going to be a bit worse. And so it's this like continuously compounding problem. and. Paul, so Paul is basically saying, don't fool yourself into thinking that you can sin occasionally without it leading to that kind of continuous sin that we've already said is a problem. Does that make sense? Like we've all agreed continuous sin is a, is is not okay. It's, it's a problem for your sanctification. And what Paul is saying here is that there's no difference. If you sin occasionally and you accept that, then that's going to lead to that continuous sin that we've already said is is, is not okay or is going to cause problems. And Jesus, Jesus actually said exactly the same thing, which I suspect is the reason why Paul's like, do you not know? Like, you should know this. It's an amazing conversation. We've looked at it before between Jesus and some of the Jews who are following him in um, John chapter eight. And Jesus says, if you continue in my word, you are really my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They replied, we're the of Abraham and we've never been anybody's slaves. How can you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, I tell you the solemn truth. If everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. So that's exactly what Paul is saying, right? You are a slave to whoever you obey. If you obey sin, you're a slave to sin. And although you may not realize it yet, the more you present your... selves. Where is it? The more you present yourselves as obedient slaves, the more you will find yourself um, enslaved again. And Paul said the same thing to the Galatians. Um, Well, he said something similar to the Galatians. Technically in Galatians, Paul's talking about being a slave to the law, but the principle is the same. He said, "Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to things that by nature are not God's at all. But now that you have come to know God or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless basic forces? Do you want to be enslaved to them all over again? And so the answer is no, right? We don't want to be slaves to sin which destroys us and destroys everybody around us. And so instead we wanna be slaves to obedience. Uh, Yeah, we wanna be slaves to obedience, which results in righteousness, which is sanctification, right? That's resulting in righteousness. We wanna be sanctified. We wanna be saved from the power of sin. And so fight, don't give in to sin. Don't allow yourselves to become slaves to sin again. Then, verses 17 to 19. Does anybody want to read that? I'll read.
1: But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart form, sorry, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness or holiness.
0: Right. So here, Paul kind of swings back into the grace, um, the grace of God and the spectacular privilege that we have in Jesus. He says, but thank God that we are not slaves, even if we act like it sometimes. And again, it's worth noticing Paul's language. He says, you were slaves to sin. You have been freed from sin and you have become, you became enslaved to righteousness. That's all past tense, right? It's done. That is our reality. But then having just said that, having just said that we are freed from sin and we are enslaved to righteousness, then Paul says, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. What's the implication? Why would Paul need to say that? Why does he have to tell us to present ourselves as slaves to righteousness? Like we are slaves to righteousness, right? He's already said that. You've become. You have been set free. You have become slaves to righteousness. Why does he then need to tell us to act like it?
2: I suppose your status of being a slave to righteousness doesn't necessarily dictate that your behavior like we're children of God, we've been saved by Jesus and all that, but we still do things wrong and sin and so on. So I suppose your status doesn't define your actions. That's probably why he also has to tell the people to act like it, even if they already know that they are.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. Just because we are, in well, but see, this is the encouragement is that we talked about this last week. You have to remember who Paul's writing to. He's not writing to unbelievers. He's writing to the believers who are in Rome, whose faith is known throughout the world, and he's not writing this in chapter two, where he's talking, talking to like those who the wrath of God is being poured out on because of their sin. He's writing to this. He's writing this in chapter six justification is done right he's writing to believers and he's saying to you you need to do this which means it's possible to not do this even though you've been justified even though you've been made a, you've been set free from sin and slave to righteousness does that make sense the implication is that even as Christians it's possible not to do this and so we need to do this Just because we've been freed from sin and have been made slaves to righteousness, that doesn't mean we will necessarily or automatically live like we're freed from sin and slaves to righteousness. And in fact, it makes it doesn't actually make any sense to say to a slave, don't act like a slave. Right. You can only say to that, that to somebody who is not a slave. Yeah. Otherwise, it's yeah. And the point is, we've been set free. We should act like we like we're free. As Paul says to the Galatians, for freedom Christ has set us free, so stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. What is a yoke?
1: It's something that harnesses you to a cart, like if you're an ox, it's a thing that goes in your shoulders and connects you to your thing that you're pulling.
0: Yeah, so it's usually like a big wooden harness that's put around an ox's neck to a to allow it to pull uh whatever the plow or whatever they're using and it's also apparently very important when you've got like a whole when it's not just one ox that you're driving you've got a whole bunch of ox oxen right and if they were all just roped up individually it could be a bit chaos because they could just all go in different directions but by harnessing them all together with a yoke you it's easier to control them. They can't all just go off in different directions. So that's normally what a yoke is. If you, if you Google yoke of slavery, this is more recent than that, but this is what you'll see. And these were apparently big logs, basically that were tied to people's necks that were reported to be so heavy and unmanageable that it was extremely difficult for the person who wore it to walk let alone escape or run away and and that was that was the idea like you were under this weight of this yoke that made it Im- almost impossible for you to walk and you couldn't even consider running away and that's what Paul's talking about is like under the law under the law and under sin we were burdened with this yoke of slavery that we couldn't even like that we had no ability to free ourselves from. You've now been set free. Don't allow yourself to become enslaved under that burden again, is the idea. A few more comments on these verses. Paul says that although we were slaves to sin, we have now become enslaved to righteousness. But then he says... I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. I've always found that comment like a bit strange and I'm not like I'm not totally sure what he means by it, but the best I can kind of make sense of it is I think he's kind of apologizing for using the imagery of slavery to talk about this. It's kind of like he's saying, I'm using this analogy because it's useful and in your flesh, it's something that you will be able to understand, but The spiritual reality is something far more beautiful. And it's kind of degraded by the the use of this ugly imagery. You know? I think that's the idea. We are under God's authority. Our lives should be used for his purposes, but God is not at all like our slave master and we are not his slaves. He doesn't see us that way and he doesn't treat us that way. Jesus said, I no longer call you slaves, but, Because the slave does not understand what his master is doing, but I have called you friends because I've revealed to you everything I heard from my father. Now, Paul isn't going to leave things here. He kind of has to start here. But as we grow in our understanding, he's going to develop his description of our relationship with God. And the reality is something far more uh, glorious than slavery or even friendship. In chapter four, Paul will say, you did not receive the spirit of slavery, leading again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness to our spirit that we are. God's children. God's children. He says the same thing when he's writing to the Galatians. He says, you are no longer a slave, but a son, a child. And if you are a son, then you are also an heir through God. So you see God is not our slave master and we are not his slaves. God is our loving heavenly father and we are his children. John writes, "See what sort of love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called God's children." And indeed, that is what we are. Indeed, that is what we are, but in the meantime we need to take our sanctification seriously and a good way to picture that is in terms of slavery we were slaves to sin we were obliged to do what our sinful nature told us to do now we should consider ourselves slaves to righteousness and we should obey righteousness in the same way that we used to obey sin that's the idea and last thing paul said that previously we presented ourselves as slaves to impurity and lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. And so that's exactly what we've been saying, right? Sin is progressive. The more you sin, the more you sin. And what Paul says is it's same, same, but different with righteousness. The more that you present yourselves as slaves to righteousness, the more that will lead to your sanctification, to more righteousness, which is Again, like uh, the passage that we looked at last week from Lewis, where he says that good and evil both increase at compound interest. That is why the little decisions you and I make every day are of such infinite importance. And remember, sanctification is the whole point of everything that Paul is talking about here. And he's saying, if you wanna be sanctified, this is how you do it. Present yourselves as slaves of righteousness. Do what it says, not what sin says. Right, so that is verse nineteen. Does anybody else want to read verses twenty two twenty three? No, okay. John, do you want to read verses twenty to twenty three?
1: For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you and your fruit to holiness, and you have your fruit to holiness, sorry, and the end everlasting life. The wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our
0: Lord. Okay, so verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free with regards to righteousness. I don't know about you, but I was kind of surprised when I read that. What does that mean? Because I get what it means to be a slave of sin. Uh, Believe me, no argument here. And Paul's going to describe that quite exquisitely in chapter 7, where he says, like, we are constantly doing things that we don't want to do and not doing things that we want to do. And so absolutely, we were and often still behave as though we are slaves to sin. But how are we free from righteousness?
1: you were serving a different master
0: sin. mhm and then you don't have to be righteous
1: uh, when you was you, you didn't care about being righteous you just that was just nothing nothing to you you were free from it
0: yeah no that's i think that's really good when i when i read that sort of i guess what i was thinking or what it felt like it was saying was that uh, was that You were not morally accountable. That you weren't. That you weren't obliged to be righteous. And obviously, everybody is morally accountable. We are all going to be held accountable, and we are all obliged to be righteous. Uh, but like you say, that's not actually what he's saying. The word "free" is. It's not like you were slaves to sin and therefore you were not righteous. The word free is contrast. It was like related to the word slave. In the same way that you were a slave to sin, you were not a slave to righteousness. And so he's saying that before we've been set free, we're not slaves to righteousness. A slave has to do what it's what, what he's told, right? Um, even if he doesn't want to, but we weren't slaves to righteousness. So we could say no, right, to God's law, whether in our hearts or in His Word. And that, and that is exactly true. That's where every atheist, everyone who rejects God finds themselves. At least in their minds, they are free from any moral accountability. They're not responsible to anybody besides themselves. They can do what they like. And that's why Dostoevsky wrote, without God, all things are possible. There's no right or wrong. I can do what I want. I'm free. But are you really free? Yeah, not exactly. As Lewis puts it, when all that says it is good has been debunked, what says I want remains that. Basically, what you tend to find is that when you have no higher standard to live up to, all you're left with is your. uh, What? Uh, appetites, your your natural uh, what do you call it? Instincts. Basically, what feels right to me is all that you're left with, and and so when you're free with regards to righteousness, you end up being a slave to yourself, to your body, to your flesh, to nature, and in fact, you find yourselves slaves to sin. Anyway, so that is what we were before God set us free, and Paul said that the end of those things is death. I think this probably oh, James wrote, "Let let no one say when he is tempted that I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each one is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then When desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is full grown, it brings forth death. And I think that there are probably different levels to that death in the long run. Obviously, if we're not justified by Jesus, then sin results in our eternal separation from the very source of life itself, from God, which is a permanent and eternal death. There's a famous 14th century um, Italian poem called Inferno where the author Dante is taken on a journey through hell and the gates to hell in this poem bear the inscription abandon all hope he who enter here and I think that that's terrifying to think to, I think it's terrifying to think about what that means like you know in life no matter how terrible your circumstances are there is always hope There's always a chance, no matter how small, that something might change. And as long as there is hope, there is life, right? There's a reason to keep going, a reason to keep living. And in fact, it's when people lose hope, when they believe that nothing can change. That's when they give up on life. That's when they feel that there's nothing left to live for. That is despair. And it's heartbreaking and it's tragic. It's tragic because there is always hope. No matter how bad things are, as long as there is life, there is hope. As Paul said in Romans 5, and this hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So as long as we are alive, there is, there is hope. But imagine what it means to be utterly with, without hope, to realize in a moment that you are lost permanently, that your situation is inalterable, that you can do nothing to change it ever, that there is no hope. I don't, we cannot imagine what, um, that, what kind of despair that will be, What that kind of despair will be like, I guess, to enter a place where there is no hope. So there's that. But in the shorter term, um, sin can also cause us to cause a more temporary separation between us and God. Not necessarily God separating himself from us, but we tend to draw back from him. Like Adam, when we're in sin, we hide from God. Genesis 3, then Adam and his wife heard the sound of the Lord moving through, moving about in the garden at the breezy time of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called, the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, "Where are you? And Adam replied, "I heard you moving about in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And the Lord said to him, "Who told you that you were naked?" To me, there are a few passages in the Bible more devastating than that one. And I hear God's voice broken like and in tears when he's saying, who told you that you were naked? Because, well, because he knows what that means for Adam, for us and for himself. But anyway, so I think that is also part of the the death that sin brings forth when it is fully grown. And then of course, there's just the the utter destruction that sin causes in our lives and in the lives of everybody around us. And so, as Paul says, what benefit did you reap from those things that you are now ashamed of? And the answer is very little. But now we have been freed from sin and enslaved to God. We are no longer slaves to sin. We aren't obliged to obey the flesh or our bodies anymore. We can say no, not no to God's law. We can say no to ourselves. We can say no to sin. But in that transition, in being freed from sin, the the process of being freed from sin is to be justified by God, right? And when we are justified by God, we're then, we, we now know that we are, we're not, we, that we are accountable to somebody, that there is, a standard by which we should be living. And so that freedom, in some sense, it comes with an enslavement to righteousness and to God, which is what he says. You've been freed from sin, but now you've been enslaved to God. Uh, we now feel obliged to obey God's word. But it's more than it's more than that. It's not just that we are obligated to obey God's law against our own will or out of fear of judgment. The moment you've been set free, the moment that you were justified, you were born again. Paul and we will talk a lot more about that in the coming chapters, Um, but something has changed in you. As Paul says to the Corinthians, so then if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. What is old has passed away. Look, all things have become new. So we're not the same creatures that we were before. God has changed our nature such that we are now slaves of righteousness. We actually want to do what is right. We don't want to say no, right? Well, we can't. Yeah, we feel like we can't say no. And although we can sin, we cannot find lasting pleasure. We can't find peace in a state of sin. We looked at this before, but Charles Spurgeon put it, like this he said god has so changed your nature by his grace that when you sin you shall be like a fish on dry land you shall be out of your element and long to get into a right state again you cannot sin for you love god the sinner may drink down the sinner may drink sin down as the ox drinketh down water but to you it shall be as the brine of the sea it'll be like salt water you may become so foolish as to try the pleasures of the world but they shall be no pleasures to you. And so I think that that is really the key. And that's also explains what Paul meant in verse 14 when he said that sin will have no mastery over you because you are not under the law, but under grace. Sin cannot control us because we have been made new creations. We've been set free from sin and been made slaves to God's righteousness. We want to do what is right. But again, it's not out of of punishment, it's because we know that we should. It's because we don't want to disappoint our our father who loves us and because we love our savior who's died for us and who's given his righteousness to us. So we're still slaves of free. Before we were slaves to sin. Now we're slaves of righteousness and slaves of God. Um, but while we're enslaved both ways, they are obviously two very different things. The, where the end result of uh, sin was death, the end result of our slavery to God is sanctification. Again, key word in this chapter, right? Sanctification. And why are we so interested in sanctification? Because the end of sanctification is not death, but eternal life. Remind me, what is eternal life?
1: Knowing God and knowing
0: Jesus. Yep. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. And Paul finishes chapter six with this like kind of epic line. He says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Have you guys heard that verse before? Yep. Yeah. Yep. It's pretty well known. I think it's part of like the Roman road to salvation or whatever. So, but it's kind of cool. So when you work for sin, you receive wages, right? You are paid for that sin, you earn it. Well, yeah, you you. well, what do you earn? What are your wages? What are the wages of sin? For the wages of sin is death, death. the wages of sin is death. Death is what you earn from your sins, right? But eternal life, we don't earn that. That's not the wages of sanctification, right? eternal life is the... the
2: gift of God yeah it's a gift you don't earn it. It's
0: the gift of God. we don't work for it. God gives it to us freely as a gift. That's what he says there it's what he says in Ephesians for by the grace for by grace you are saved through faith and this is not from yourselves it is the gift of God. And in 2 Corinthians, he says, thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. So, yeah, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So that is chapter 6 of Romans, the start of our sanctification. If we go... We have been set free from sin. We are no longer enslaved to it, and we no longer have to obey it. We no longer have to do what it says. But what does that mean for God's law? And that's where Paul's going to go next in chapter 7. How is God's law affected by our justification and our sanctification? Like I said, we'll talk about that from next week when we get to chapter 7. thoughts comments things that stand out to you
2: i don't know San- sanctification has always been a, a bit of a interesting topic for me personally like it was always a bit like, salvation is something which, you know, it's very easy to define and understand, but sanctification was always a bit on and off. So, it's, it's quite interesting to look more into that, I think.
0: I would say same for me. <laughs> it's uh, I'm learning as I'm going, I guess. It's not something that I felt like I knew nearly so much about. Um Yeah. And I guess partly because it's a process, right? Like none of us are saying, well, that process isn't complete for any of us and probably for most of us, it's still fairly fairly, fairly early on. And so it's not something that I feel like I'm speaking from experience about. Um,
2: yeah, it's, it's an ongoing thing. Whereas salvation, it's not something which you can like earn or like, It's it's not a process once you believe in, you know, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart and all that, it, it, it's a it's a done thing. Whereas, um, sanctification is sort of an ongoing process, so it's interesting comparing the two.
0: Mm.
1: Yeah, you can't exactly share your sanctification testimonial like your salvation testimony mm-hmm. in the same
0: way. Some people can. More. I think. Um, I think that that's. I think it's probably also something that's hard when you've grown up in church. Uh, yeah, because to an extent you haven't known anything different, apart from being in the process of being sanctified, sanctified in a sense. Whereas I think there are a lot of other people who it's far more dramatic, um, or I guess the the initial part of that sanctification can happen quite dramatically in in a lot of people's lives but uh or where they've been set free from things that they used to be enslaved to you know for us it's or at, at your age and having grown up in church it's maybe also something that's harder to see but that's the other thing Hopefully not, but chances are as you guys get older, you're going to make mistakes that are going to, yeah, that you are going to need God to help you with and sanctify you through. Um, And then it'll become maybe more real in your lives as well. Hmm. So. Just because we're justified by God's grace, that doesn't mean we should accept or rest in even occasional sin in our lives. Why?
1: Because we need to present our members
0: to righteousness. Why? What did he say the what did he say the problem of like sin was? Or giving in to sin, I guess. Even occasionally.
1: There's a CS thing where one small defeat can end up as a large defeat.
0: Um, yep, which is very close. Like Paul said something very similar. He said, you are a slave to... Righteousness. He said... Do you not know, oh no, yeah, do you not know, this is verse 16, that if you present yourselves as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the ones that you obey. Yeah. So if you obey one thing a little
1: bit, you become a slave to that, or less obedient to the other.
0: that was the idea. Don't give in to sin, even a little bit, because you are a slave to the one you obey. And if you find yourself obeying sin, you are essentially becoming a slave to it. And we're not supposed to be slaves to sin because, like you said, we are
1: Righteousness.
0: Yeah, we've been made free from sin and we've become slaves to righteousness. What does that mean? What does it mean to be a slave to righteousness?
1: It means you serve righteousness, you serve God, you belong to that way of living.
0: What does that look like?
1: It looks like following Jesus and becoming more like Jesus. It would look like sanctification.
0: Yeah, any other thoughts? Okay, we'll pray. Lord God, thank you again that that we have been justified that if we've been believed in you, you've given us Jesus' righteousness, Lord, and that you've declared us righteous. But I thank you that that's not all, that's not the end, that that's not all you want for us, Lord, that you are, that you have far grander plans for us, and that you see far more potential in us than that. And I ask that you would help each of us to to get to a point where we are willing to allow you to sanctify us to uh, cause us to live free from sin and to, to be made more like you, Lord, to be made more righteous and to be made more and more like you in love, in grace, and in obedience. Um, and that, that as we do that, we would see the fruit in our lives, Lord, that we would see we would see that sanctification and I guess the eternal life. Lord, that the more you sanctify us, the better we would know you. And the more of that life that you have for us, we would experience. Please be with us, all of us this week. um, And Lord, work that sanctification in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.